business leaders, actors, musicians, and even Zen masters, and me, <laughs> have called on him to help them break the deep patterns that lead to feeling stuck. You know, it's like we're looking out of similar windows, and someone says, "Hey, look at that!" And now that's how we look at the world for our own window. We get a countdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. So today I have Andrew Bishop with me, and Andrew is the founder and creator of the Bishop Method, a living system that helps liberate creative minds from the restrictive forces that consume their energy and leave them uninspired. Business leaders, actors, musicians, and even Zen masters, and me, <laughs> have called on him to help them break the deep patterns that lead to feeling stuck. So I'm very excited to get into this. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you too. So I'm curious to hear, how would you describe what you're doing? Oh, gosh. You know, I have a different answer for that every time someone asks. That's what I'm asking. It's kind of a game I play. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of depends on my mood. The thing is vast and it it shifts shape it shifts shape depending on who is asking and what's going on you know right now today i would call it a method of generative breath work although that kind of undersells it um that's sort of what it is it's a method where we engage you know what it is? It's about engaging with yourself and the world you inhabit creatively, right? And I can tell you a story about that later if you want. But we co-create our ongoing experience, right? We get sensory data in from the outside. We mix it with bits of memory and impressions from the inside. And from that, we construct a little model of the world. And it's a model that's useful to us as an animal. If there's a predator, then hopefully the model makes the predator in the foreground and gives it lots of attention and makes it seem notable. You know, and if it's if it's just something we don't need to notice, it pushes it back a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of problems that happen in that process, though. You know, we think we're living in the real world, but what we're seeing is our own co-created version of the real world, right? So what the Bishop Method does, among many other things, is it helps you smooth out that process. So if there are any little uh, bits of kind of uh, impulsive uh, or neurotic or reactive uh, elements in that co-creation process, we're smoothing it out a little. And we're primarily doing that by using the breath and by relaxing tensions in the body and by doing those we're slightly adjusting the content in our minds the the way i look at it is if you if you step over the content of what we're experiencing and what our problems are and what's wrong you get down to three basic things that are sort of the the elements that hold us in stuck states. Our breathing is restricted. It affects the whole physiology. It affects the way we think. We have tension in the body, 
patterns of tension that limit the way we can move and they limit the way we see ourselves and the way we can interact with the world. And we have very limited patterns of thinking. We, we sort of think in the same patterns. We construct thoughts in the same way and we have this repeat the same beliefs over and over without looking for new evidence. What the Bishop method does is we, we unlock that stuff. We, we make that editable by using the generative power of breathing and by dissolving the physical tension and the tense patterns in the mind. And then the, the result is your body sits and moves differently a little. You know, it's not really about, we're not really focused on that. It sort of happens naturally. You know, we don't, mm -hmm. it's not a method where we're trying to get it to be correct particularly, but it also uh, means that the mind moves differently so your thinking starts to change your ideas about yourself start to change and as a result your ongoing subjective experience shifts a little this is very useful if you want to get unstuck if you're kind of stuck in your own way you have a problem and you know the problem is you it's useful for that so that's one, that's today's version of what it is. I don't mean I I've said some of that before. <laughs> I love it. Um, you gave the triune, I, I would call it the triune model of uh, breathing tension on mind, right? And mm -hmm. so what would you say are some subtle ways to observe the changes that occur? You know, it's a very difficult thing because in, in anything that really changes you, it's the thing that's doing the observing is the thing changing. So it's, it's very hard to track sometimes. You know, it's very hard to track, but mm. you feel different. The first thing I noticed was that my stress response changed. Um, I can talk about that if you like. Um, I could go into way more detail about that. I don't know what you... Absolutely, what you please. Want, but, well... Let me let me give a few examples of how you notice it, and then I can do that if you like. The, cool. um, yeah, my stress response changed. When I was in my early twenties, I would get these extreme stress responses. Like if my boss was mean to me, which she was frequently, um, I would get it'd be like days. I'd just be spiraling in this anxious state, like like kind of keeping myself completely disturbed. I had no way out of the loop, and very quickly by doing what I now do and what I now share with other people, it, it enabled my body and my mind to complete that cycle. So very quickly I was done with the stress loop. Now it was, it didn't make me immune to stress. It just helped me navigate it more gracefully. So I was out of it more easily. That's the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed was that, well, the second thing I noticed was that I had a massive explosion of creativity. You know, I, I had, it was like all of this energy I was using to keep myself tense and worried was freed and I could use it for what I want, which was creating a life I liked that was worth living, <laughs> which is why I got into all of this stuff. I wanted life to be really worth living. You know? um, and the way I was doing it, I didn't find it was all the time. You know, um, there was this massive explosion of creative energy. I started drawing and painting, which has been something I've always been interested in, but kind of blocked on. 
the best feedback you can get is other people noticing that you're different. That's the best feedback because then it doesn't come from, it's not yourself trying to figure it out and reading into things, you know, and it's not me telling you something you want to hear. You know, it's someone else in your life is like, Hey, you're different. And I've had that a bunch of times. I had it early on. I'm really a very different person now. So those are some ways there are others. <laughs> Yeah, I feel that. And I've had very similar experience. We've been working together for what's like two and a half months to three months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I can definitely see my stress response changing. I mm -hmm. have worked a lot on it before, but I can definitely say that what would last days, like you said, now would take me would last hours if not minutes mm -hmm. there is a definite difference there and there's also a difference in um, noticing noticing the onset and choosing between am i gonna play this game am i gonna let it consume me or am i going to observe it and let it sink from wh where it came from yeah well, I think that's the key thing is observing it, right? The, what most people do is they numb out to it. They try and hide from it. And in some situations, that's the only available strategy. Sometimes that's the reasonable thing to do. If this, if it's not safe to do anything else, then that's what you got to do. You do the best you can, you know, but these smaller things, the smaller stresses that happen day to day in the moment. Yeah. You, you, it's, it's my view that you've got to feel them, you know, if necessary, you have to express them safely. You know? And that's, that's really a part of life. It can become kind of fun. It's, it's numbing out to it all and pushing mm -hmm. it down. That's what really felt bad to me. You know? Yeah. You said that you're going to share a story beforehand is that is that an appropriate timing if you want i i was just going to tell you like more about my story you know like what happened to me if you want because it's kind of an illustration of that i gave you the vague overview of it there i could say a little more about it if you want is that interesting yeah yeah there's something i've actually noted down to ask you so please do all right well how how early do you want to start all right the start of the beginning <laughs> yeah. So I was a super shy kid, really creative. You know, I lived in, in imaginary worlds. I'm an introvert, right? Severe introvert. So I just lived in daydreams and imaginary worlds. That's fun for me. That's like restorative for me to, to do that. And I grew up in the 90s in the UK. And the 90s were a wild time to be alive. You know, there was a, it was the time of like the X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and stuff like that. It's like weird, strange stuff was mainstream. It was everywhere you looked, you know, like UFOs, occult stuff, you know, all of this stuff. But it, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't a sort of mature version of it that we have going now. It's, it's like, well, I actually using the word mature is a little dubious for that, but it was less mature than it is now, right? It, it was, there were no uh, 
kind of uh, checks really on anything. It was like, whatever goes. Mm -hmm. So there was this explosion. And as a teenager, I, I grew up in a very small, boring town that happened to have an excellent esoteric bookstore, like a really good one. And the only reason it had a good one was because of this cultural movement. It shouldn't have had a good one. It doesn't make sense. Oh, but yeah. I would hang around in there a lot, right? Like, like a, a lot, you know. I was kind of into weird stuff. And I liked a couple of the people who run the place. Yeah, it's like I just hang around in there all the time. And they had a really weird selection of books, like not what you would expect an esoteric bookstore to have. They didn't have major categories the guy didn't like. So he just left them out, you know. <laughs> but he would go super nerdy on something else and have this like huge. So I, you know, I at some point picked up and at least looked at every book in that place. So I was mm -hmm. hanging out, in there, you know. So I had this sort of background in, in weird stuff and um, kind of nerdy about it, but I was never like deeply into it. Really, I just liked life being mysterious and weird you know mm. but i picked up enough stuff from there like little self-help strategies and self-hypnosis and uh you know little tricks to more or less manage my extreme shyness kind of right it helped me get by i developed some strategies right that kind of made life livable i could have a perfectly functioning social life without freaking out the whole time so it, it kind of enabled me to i took some things and tried them and kind of ran with it well after university the situation changed a lot you know, i was suddenly yeah the shyness thing it wasn't fixed but it was manageable Right, is I could you know I could be a social creature just fine, but I realized I was totally unprepared to actually be myself. After all of that, I ended up working these jobs, couple jobs. My first job was at a huge internet company, and then I worked as a, a marketing consultant, and I was so bored. Those things just killed my spirit. You know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with the job or the people. It just wasn't for me. I couldn't do it. I wasn't good at it. You know, it like cut the life off from me. Yeah. And I was trying to fit myself into this thing, and I felt like I had to because I needed the money, and I was totally trapped by this idea that I need the money. I got to keep doing it. Now I know that if I just quit, it wouldn't have made much difference in the long run, you know, but at the time it felt like I really needed it to survive. I felt yeah. totally trapped. I was bored out of my mind, understimulated, like totally unseen, not stretched at all, crushed, creatively crushed. You know? yeah. And I, this is a common story. You know? <laughs> I'm not the only Happened one who's to experienced me. this. Yeah. Yeah. It's very common. You know, you, you, it's like you're sent off into the world and the first, the first thing you find is usually not great. Um, anyway, I hated it and it was killing me. And I was like numbing myself out all the time just with like TV and food and beer, you know, mm -hmm. not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but I was using them to try and patch over a problem, you know? 
it, so it took a strain on my health. I got weird sicknesses that kept coming back. Right. Um, put a lot of strain on my relationship because I was like unhappy, you know, and I wasn't mm-hmm. like fulfilling my side of the deal, which is like to be myself and to do it well, you know. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't see what the hell I could do about it. I was totally trapped. I couldn't see clearly what was possible. So something needed to happen. I started experimenting with a bunch of stuff. I went, you know, I went back to some of the stuff I found as a kid. Mm, turned out that didn't really get the kind of results I was hoping for. Um, a lot of that stuff was kind of good tricks, but sort of imaginary. It wasn't grounded enough in reality for me. Right. I did a bunch of psychoanalysis, which I have to say kind of worked like the things I was complaining about did resolve themselves, but I hated the process and I couldn't shake the feeling that it was, you know, I was a fog in this guy's eyes. He was a great guy of really smart, but he saw me as a mystery and I'm sitting there having a human experience of physical discomfort. And I just felt like I was being missed, you know, but I have to say, Somehow, it seemed to help. I gained a lot of respect for myself in that process somehow. I'd say I actually lost respect for myself in one way and gained respect for myself in another way. It was was actually quite helpful. But I hated it. So from that experience, I went looking for something that was physical, that would actually change how I felt in the body in a way Mm -hmm. that I could reproduce. That's what I wanted. I looked through books and all sorts of things. I went crazy hunting for stuff. Eventually, I found some things that seemed to operate in the physical realm and then adjust my interior stuff, like my the way I felt, the way I saw myself, my beliefs about myself, that kind of thing. They seemed to naturally correct. And that was a bunch of books that were by or inspired by or somehow related to a guy called Wilhelm Reich, who was sort of a mad scientist. He started off as Freud's number one student, you know, and then he kind of deviated from there. He's like the only person who took Freud literally, right? He wanted to know, okay, where are these forces that you're talking about? Where is it? Let's see it. Let's get our hands on it. So I got a lot from him and from uh, reading books by Alexander Lowen and people in that category. You know, there's a, that stuff exists all over the place. There's the trauma side of it, this TRE. There's the side of it. There's a side of it that is kind of in the esoteric world more, mm-hmm. uh, which is more, which kind of comes from this guy called Israel Gadi. He was a, a Reiki therapist, so it's in his work, but he did. He, he was onto some whole other thing and uh, his students and stuff like that. There's the whole body of work there that influenced all sorts of things. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's useful, but anyway, yeah. So, but the big one for me was Lauren really. Yeah. He, he got something and communicated it clearly that I could immediately prove to myself, which is that I was resisting life. I'm resisting pleasure and all of my fucked up strategies for how I was getting through my day 
were attempts to keep life at bay in my body and outside me. <laughs> I hear you. Is there a breakthrough? Is there, is there a continuation? I should ask a question. Look, I can continue. I was just swigging coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you edit these things. All right, let's go. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I can, I can, I'll fin- let me finish up the story. It's been a while actually. All right. Yeah. Um, so I tried these things immediately. I, I tried what they were suggesting, some of these techniques, and immediately there was an incredible shift. My body was like buzzing and, and like, mm. It was vibrant. It was trembling, like like immediately, and I, I I realized I had a body. I felt alive. My mind, although it was slightly freaked out, it just calmed down, and I felt like grounded and present, and complete. It was like I I felt like myself for the first time in a long long time. So as soon as I got a taste of that, I needed to do much more of it, and I did. Yeah. I chased down different ways of doing it. I started experimenting on myself like crazy to try and make it do better. You know, that's because when something works, I like to try and make it work better. That's just kind of, I treat it, my background's in film and art. I treat it like a craft form. I want to master the thing or break Mm -hmm. it. You know, I want to push it and, and try and make it work better or do things it shouldn't do. And so, that's what I was doing. All of this comes out of that process on myself. I love it. I love it. And that's true. Like after just a few sessions, you can feel the buzzing. So mm-hmm. <laughs> resisting pleasure might sound like quote unquote stupid to someone who does not understand this. Like, why would I even do that? So could you share about the mechanics? behind resisting pleasure and why does it actually happen? Because it does happen and I've seen it in myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, you might even be able to say that the new, that the absence of pleasure is neurosis. I'm not, I'm not quite sure that I would agree with that, but it's a kind of a bold statement, you know? but there's something in the direction of true about that. Um, we, we handle the world by bracing ourselves. Mm-hmm. We get a, 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 a subtle tensing in different areas of the body to, to, it's like if you ever saw a dog who was uh, hit by a bad owner, you know, they'll have this response where they kind of tense up whenever they think someone might hurt them or, or, you know, we're doing the same stuff constantly, but not just with things that are that negative. It's a whole bunch of stuff like that, that we're, we're tensing up. We have patterns of doing it, styles of doing it that become the way we inhabit the world it becomes our basic response to the world. You know, it's what they call character. It becomes our basic character structure a little bit. Um, when you tense something up, it's a way of keeping feeling away from it. It's, it's, you, you numb it. You're resisting the movement of energy or the flow of life through it. Yeah. It's a way of holding it at bay. And, and it's a strategy. You know, I think that the, the human mind is totally benevolent. I think it wants to give us pleasure and help us meet our goals 
and have a joyful, good life, but it gets very confused. And this is one of the ways it gets confused is by keeping out that negative stuff, by trying to numb out the negative feeling, you block off the good feelings too. You know? the world it's the same is pathways, each... right? It's the same pathways. Yeah, it's the same body. You know, it's the same brain. It's the same experience. You know, the, the world itself is neutral. And, and we make, we, we embellish it. We make it better than it really is, or we make it worse than it really is. And we swing between these things. And the way that we do that, the, the body changes. It's a different physical posture in, in each, you know, and, but a lot of it is very subtle and, and it's out of our awareness. You know, it's unconscious a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's not until you actually release the tension that you realize what you've been carrying. And I'll just mm -hmm. give the example, the very simple example of the overly kyphotic posture that like 99% mm -hmm. of people have when, when they're working. Yep. <laughs> which is like caving of the shoulders, tension in the neck, tension in the in the in the upper chest. Yep. Pectoral, I catch myself doing it all the time. <laughs> yeah, same here. And what's the the result of it? So, like, how are we carrying ourselves in the world because of the because because of this? We're carrying ourselves in a state of brace, in a state of mm -hmm. assuming that the worst the worst will happen. So we're preparing to defend ourselves, and we're defending ourselves yes. ver verbally, link, uh, um, somatically spiritually in every possible way right absolutely yeah now sometimes it's completely appropriate to defend yourself yeah that's <laughs> and it's like maybe even like morally right you know but it's i think we have every right to defend ourselves from a real threat but what we do is we walk through the days we're defending ourselves from imaginary threats things that aren't actually in the room you know why are we nervous if there's no monster in the room? You know, why is that? Well, we're perpetuating something. We have these mm -hmm. internal states that we're responding to as if they're real. We've made the world worse than it really is. And we're responding to it as if that's true, forgetting that we did it. We did the embellishing. It's in our heads. We're piecing it together in, in the way I was describing earlier at the beginning, right? We created yeah. that, or we at least co-created it. It's in the way we we're making it up to be, and we're responding as if it's real. The, the we all do this, and it's a good thing. The, our ability to do this it helps us save a whole bunch of energy, so that the brain can do other things. If we had to constantly manage this stuff, can you imagine? We never like use all of our available resources. So we, our body and our brain are taking shortcuts to protect us, but it's not malleable enough. We get stuck. It becomes, you know, when, it, when, when that protection, that, that uh, the excessive protection, the useless and unnecessary defense, when that stuff takes hold, it shapes our basic response to the world. And it shapes who we are and 
um, yeah, that's a problem, I think. Yeah. So with this thought process, we could say that character is essentially the built-in tension in the body. Is that right? Let me think about that. No, not phrased perfectly. Well, it's difficult to phrase this stuff perfectly because you can't Mm. observe character directly. You have to infer it, you know? So I think that that's, um, yeah, I think that might be close enough to true to be treatable as true. It suddenly has a, yeah, it has a, it, it suddenly has a physical tense basis. But character is like, yeah, it is. It, I guess it is. Character is like the, the posture with which you respond to life or the style with which you approach life, right? Now, it's not, it's not what you do. It's not your posture itself is a habit, right? Yeah. But it's an expression of something else. And what, so that's, but that's behavior. But habit is a behavior. Now, if, so say, for example, I'm nervous, right? Um, that is a behavior. No, okay. The behavior would be I hold my breath when I'm around other people. That's a behavior, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm doing that constantly because I'm nervous, that's personality, right? If I'm doing the same behavior or this, a similar behavior in multiple situations, because that's the way I am, that's personality. Character is the thing below that. It's, it's like the tectonics of that, that the personality grows out from. It's a basic statement. It's in that example, it would be, it could be something like, well, the world isn't safe. Other people aren't safe. I'm not safe around other people. So that would be closer to, to character. You know, it's like a, it's a basic approach and you can definitely see that and get to that in the body, in the way we hold ourselves. Yeah. How close is character to what you define as a core belief? How close is character to what I define as a core belief? That's a really good question. Wow. You're going to make me think. Um, All right. So, okay, let's try and get there. I'm going to do my best for you. Character is a way of embellishing the, a, a world that is neutral, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's an outlandish statement or not, that the world is neutral, by the way, because it doesn't feel neutral to most people. Mm-hmm. But I'm asserting that it is. And you you can go explore and see if that's true. What I'm claiming is that there are enough good things in the world as there are bad things, which is zero. And that that stuff is in the human brain and that, and that we judge it and forget we did and, and make the world that way, but it's in us. I, but I realize as I said that, that maybe people listening to this would find that an outlandish statement to me, that's clear, but I invite you to explore. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> same here. It's um, um, it's based on the, it's not belief. It's the truth that the world is period, and it's up to you to make the interpretation. Yeah. And the more of you that you remove, the more present you become, the more close you are to the truth of what actually is. Yeah, yeah. We adjust the world, and then we forget we did it. 
and we act as though the world is that way, you know. Well, okay, character and belief. Let me see if I can get there. So we talked about Wilhelm Reich and Alexander Lowen. They came up with classifications of character, of types. And they're trends. And they can be very useful if you're working in a certain context. Um, if you're doing therapy, it's very useful because you can see what's, and I'm doing air quotes, wrong with someone and what you could maybe do about it. You know, it's very useful. You get direct feedback. It's very useful. I see immense value in that. I've benefited hugely from it. It's not something I really do. It's not my style. You know, that way of looking at character. Um, I'm trying to get around to my view of belief and how it relates. Mm -hmm. um, so most methods, most ways of approaching yourself that actually work they're giving you tools and weapons in that fight with your character to kind of correct it. What I'm doing in the Bishop method is not quite that. It might look like that at times, but it's actually, it's, it's a, a process of active surrender, you know? So it's a process of, by which you more and more or less and less, you, you define yourself as a problem less and less. And you also define yourself as a solver of your problem less and less you know you you become closer to how you actually are and you become closer to how the world actually is you know? instead of embellishing it in a way that's problematic that's the sort of process that takes place in in what i do using very similar tools so it's related the this does result in in character change you know we are adjusting things on the level of character just like Rake and Lowen would have been doing. The approach that I take for myself is is kind of different, even if there are strong similarities. I don't rely on typology. I like to be surprised by people. I like people to be these surprising mysteries. And typology of any kind kind of bores me. You know, I like to be surprised. And I don't think that people are fixed. I think that they're different. Every time I meet you, you're different. You know, every time I speak to you, I'm different. You know, and yeah. I like people to be surprising and mysterious. And I like to encourage that spontaneous, creative interaction with the world. You know, and and when we acknowledge that we're fresh every moment, there's a lot of liberation available. And instead of correcting someone. It's a different game. It's like, okay, what's happening now? How could they do this more powerfully? How could they do that in a way that has self, more self-love in it? How could they do that in a way that's more pleasurable or more graceful? Or how could they be themselves without rushing all the time? Or how could they do that but have more energy? Or how could they do that but be less harsh towards themselves? You know, it's, it's more of a, a, a kind of on the fly in the moment as you currently are kind of deal. I've got to relate that to belief somehow, huh? If you want to. That, that question was strictly formulated out of my own curiosity. And <laughs> at the same time, I'm loving where you're taking this. I have a model I use 
for belief and character and stuff like that. And it's just a model. And when I say it's just a model, I mean, it's a map. It's not true. No model is true. It can't be by definition. If it was true, it would be the real thing, right? A model is a simplification of reality that's convenient for a purpose. You know, and that includes all scientific models. That's why they get disproven because they aren't reality. They're, they're maps of reality that get outdated and are useful for a time and they no longer work. So it's just a model. I don't see this as the way the world really is. It's the way of navigating. I find this useful. I don't know if other people do. There are things called concepts. Like right now I'm holding a cup of coffee and there is a physical object here, but there's also the concept cup of coffee. If I didn't have the concept cup of coffee, I would not be able to interact with this physical object quite so well. So there are two things here. There's a cup of coffee and there's a concept of a cup of coffee. It's where the cup of coffee becomes air quotes cup of coffee. You know, it becomes a symbol of itself that I can manipulate. Okay. That's a concept. So True. I've given this the, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, this is cool. I'm following. Hmm. All right. I've given this object a conceptual rendering. I've caught it, I, I, and the conceptual rendering is air quotes, cup of coffee. It's attached to all sorts of things, how I can use it. Okay. That concept also has a little bit, a tiny little bit of feeling in it. It's got a little tiny bit of an emotional tone, very vague, but I feel a certain very small way about something as simple and benign as a cup of coffee. You know? So we have these concepts the way we understand our environment. It's, it's, I could say the word pencil to you, or I could say the word milk to you. And I know that you've understood me, but I have no idea how you're understanding that. I have no idea how you're internally representing milk. You could be getting a glass of milk that's cool and you see the glass mm -hmm. sweating. It could be an old school glass bottle of milk, you know, or a carton of milk or you could be seeing a cow or a mother feeding a child or whatever. I have no idea. You know? Or you might be disgusted by milk and just feel repulsion. I have no idea. All I know is that you've understood me. I've said something that is, I've, by saying the word milk, I've given you an instruction to create an internal experience that's close enough to mine that we can navigate a conversation together, right? Mm -hmm. But I have no idea the details of it. That's individual. Well, we have these concepts for everything. And what they do is, is we, we gather them together with other concepts. They form groups of concepts that are more complex, more detailed. And the little bit of feeling that they all have gathers together. So there's an overall emotional tone or an overall feeling. The gathering together of these concepts is what I call beliefs, right? It's a group of concepts with a dominant emotional tone. It might be vague, but it's usually there. They operate together to form belief systems. You get a bunch of these beliefs, forms out of concepts operating together. You get belief systems. You get complex ways of looking at the world. 
the belief systems totally define what is possible for us. It's, you know, uh, if I don't think I'm good enough to get into that university, I'm probably not going to apply to that university. You know what I mean? It defines what we actually do and how we interact with the world. In yeah, all of these yourself belief the systems. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you think of it, the, the overall sets of belief systems is how we structure ourselves, how we structure the world. In, when they make TV shows, and my wife's working on a TV show right now, it's how I know about this. The, there's a thing called a character Bible. If you're going to have many writers on one project, the person who's the creator of the TV show comes up with the Bible of each character. This is the scope of the character. This is what they want. This is how they interact with the world. This is how they'd react to different people. This is what they want out of different people. All of this stuff. Well, our overall sets of belief systems are like the character Bibles in TV shows. It defines the limits of how we respond to the world and what we want from the world. So that is, to me, how belief and character relate. The, the upshot of that is experience, right? The, the, from our sets of beliefs, we get our ongoing current subjective experience. It's always running and it, it does certain things to us. Our experience is always there. We're always having a subjective experience. It includes what's in our attention, what gets our attention, how our attention is directed. It includes how our imagination is engaged. We have a repertoire. We have a set list, a range of the types of experience that we allow ourselves based on our belief systems. And I think it was Robert Anton Wilson, by the way, who pointed out that belief systems abbreviates to BS. You know, it's all delusion. Yeah. I'm going to quote you and say that a belief is a, limited, a limiting assertion that is held in place by our admiration of somebody else's thoughts that we haven't examined for ourselves. Damn, I said that? That's good. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's another part of it. We pick these things up from the environment. Someone says something and we find ourselves repeating it. Well, you know, that, that, that works on the level of a joke or whatever, but it's also true in the basic way we look out of the world. You know, it's like we're looking out of similar windows and someone says, hey, look at that. And now that's how we look at the world for our own window or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so from my perspective, what I hear and see is that we have picked up those limitations along the way that are stored in our brain that dictate the range of experiences that we're going to have in life. And with this in mind, how do we go on about replacing these mm -hmm. limitations with our own created programs? It's such a good question. Well, all right, there's a lot to that. And there are many different approaches, many different ways of doing it. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit and then I'll get to the way I see that, if you like. For sure. Um, 
We should probably talk about breathing somewhere, huh? But okay. So, um, all right. I, all right. I have a cup of coffee. I made this cup of coffee. I have a cup of coffee because I made one. I made this cup of coffee because I am someone who knows how to make a cup of coffee, right? If I focused, if I didn't know how to make a cup of coffee and I put all my effort on wishing I had a cup of coffee, if I focus on just the result, I'm not going to really end up with a cup of coffee unless like someone else takes pity on me and makes me one or I go out and buy one. If I focus on the result, there's not much power there. There's a lot of new age stuff where you just focus on the result. I'm not a fan of it. That may be part of the equation, but I don't think that's an empowered way of moving towards what you want, right? Then there's the doing of it. I could spend all my time making cups of coffee. Maybe I'd get better at it. There'd be a lot of trial and error. The thing is, I still wouldn't be the person who knows how to make the cup of coffee. So the approach I'd suggest is why not become the, the person who knows how to make a cup of coffee? And then you'll make a cup of coffee. You know, if I want to exercise more, which is something I'm currently working on, right? I love exercise. I find myself since COVID not doing it anywhere near mm -hmm. enough. I want mm -hmm. to do it more. Okay. So I could pr approach that various different ways. I could give myself an imagination of the result and get a really sharp vision of how I'd like to look and feel. You know? And I suspect that's part of it, but I don't think that's a direct way of moving towards it. You know? It doesn't seem empowered. I'm just sitting there imagining stuff. That's probably a key ingredient, but I don't know that it's the engine, you know, it's, it might be necessary. It's not going to be the thing that gets me there. I could just have the intention to start doing stuff, you know, and I get some results that way easily. I could just walk more, you know what I mean? Or I yep. could do more of what I'm doing, but it would be random. There'd be no particular plan to it. I'd just be sort of obsessively taking actions whenever I could. Again, that's part of it. You know, I'm going to need that in my journey here. That's, that's necessary. But what if I also focused on becoming a person who naturally exercises more just by being me? You know, what if I become that person? That's the kind of shift that we're talking about here. It's on Don't. that level. It's higher up in the stack. You know? Now, there are many ways to do that. Um, I guess I should talk about my own way of doing it since this is what this is supposed to be about, right? So in a Bishop Method session, <laughs> we're, we're creating change. We're making adjustments in ourselves, right? In how we show up in the world and how we meet the world, how we experience the world. I have a model for that. And again, it's just a model. It's not literally true. It can't be true because it's a model by definition. You know, you judge a model based on how useful it is. Does it get you closer to where you want to be? That's the, you judge by the results. You know? 
For me, this is useful for now. We'll see. But but there's there are, there's a loop that we're all running all the time, and we can interact with ourselves on any stage of this loop, right? In the Bishop Method sessions, we primarily do that by adjusting the physiology. We're using a very special type of breathing. We're adjusting the tension in the body. We're getting certain energies flowing in the body, certain waves happening in the body, certain processes happening. So we're mainly doing it with physiology, right? We pretend that the mind and the body is somehow different, but I've never found that line. Personally, it seems to just be convenient to talk about them as if they're different. I can't find that line on the map, you know, or even in reality. You know? But when you do something to change how your physiology, how your body is at the moment, even if it's adjusting your posture or smiling, you know, whatever it is, it could be small. It doesn't have to be as extreme as breathing for an hour. You know, it could be small. But when you do that, there's a change in your ongoing subjective experience. You immediately notice that something is different. You feel different. Huh, I feel, I smiled and now I feel different. It might be very small, but it's there. So there's a feedback loop. That feedback loop, noticing that you feel different, enables you to adjust. And this happens in real time constantly, I'm suggesting. It adjusts how we see ourselves and how we see our, how, how we see the world in that moment, right? So that's sort of the level of belief, if you like. It, it's how we frame our experiences. It's the maps we use to navigate our daily life. There's a little update to that. So it could be, you know, it could be as simple as, I don't want to do this task. I hate that to, you know what? I'm, I don't like how I feel when I do that, but I like what I get from it. And maybe I could do it differently. That's a significant change in, mm -hmm. in belief in, in the moment, you know, that little, it's a little upgrade. Well, that also, by the way, I think includes a map of what our bodies are like and what's possible for our bodies. I think it updates at that stage. You know. How we see ourselves, the self image, how we see the world, it impacts the movement of the mind. It impacts the way we apply and move and direct our attention. It changes the content and the way in which we imagine. It does a whole bunch of things in the mind consciously and unconsciously. It's, it's sort of like the creative way we take the map and make it into an experience, right? It's, it's, what we are drawing out of the map. So usually we're stuck somewhere on this loop at any point, or if there's uh, something that's not going well, you can often find it. Okay, well, how is that showing up? You know, this is the cycle. We do this constantly and it's how we validate our problems. It's how we get convinced that our problems are real and they're in the world rather than in the mind. Because we get this feedback loop of experience and we become more and more convinced of it. In the Bishop Method, we aim to mess with this on every level, but the primary, the primary entry point is the breathing, it's the physiology and the tension in the body. We use that as a jumping off point. The reason we do that is because there's no story there. In all of the other levels, you have the risk of getting lost in the content 
of the mind. If you start with the body, you go under it. So, so you can make a change that affects your experience without getting tangled up by the details of what she said to me 10 years ago or how I felt or how they looked at me when I messed up this, you know, whatever. You, don't, you can make an adjustment without getting lost in those minefields. Because when you go looking for content and when you work on the level of content, there's always something there. Always is supplied. If you look for it, it'll be supplied. The body and the breathing is a great way to get under that and tackle it without getting lost. So that's what we do in the Bishop Method. We're affecting all stages of that cycle. That's the way we co-create our experience. It's just a model. It's just a map. It's not literally true. It's just a convenience. Our doorway in is the breath and the tension in the body. Beautiful. So we're using physiology to inform and transform our psychology, right? That's true. But my, my focus is always on the experience, right? You know, the someone's psychology is interesting to me, but what I really care about is how they are right now. And how are they going to be the next moment? How are they setting themselves to enter the next moment? So that's always what I'm focused on, which is a very different approach to therapy or something like that, right? Where you'll go, maybe you're more likely to go looking for the causes. I'm looking at how they are right now. And I'm tracking that. In a, with, when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a client, I'm silently breathing along with them, getting in tune with them. And getting on, so I'm. So the idea is that if something's going on for them, I might feel it because I'm breathing the same way. So if they're breathing in a messed up way, so am I. And I'm like, okay, uh, maybe let's change that. How could we do that more gracefully? It's a live thing. Mm -hmm. My therapist mind wants to go into that and ask you about: Are you, <laughs> are you like? putting yourself in the same frequency, which is created by the frequency of breath. And through that resonance, you are picking up the information that they're emitting. Yeah, sure. You could say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, depending on the situation, I might not hang out there the whole time. Mm. Yeah. I'm taking readings from that. I'm sampling that. I'm trying it on. Yeah. Cool. Primarily so to go... using the breath. Yeah. Good. To go back to what you previously said and to clarify it in my mind, instead of phrasing it as we're using physiology to affect our psychology, we are using our physiology to create a state in our experience that will make us more grounded and present and increase the frequency at which, at which this occurs so that we are new or we become accustomed at becoming new at every moment. Would that be mm -hmm. more accurate? Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does make you more present. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that presence is a solution for a lot of stuff that we experience. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not going to necessarily fix anything that's wrong and needs attention and needs fixing, but it, it really resolves a lot of minor issues. You need... If you're present, you need a lot less of your internal architecture. You know, 
because a lot of that stuff is just is as a replacement for it because you know like i said we have these repertoires of how we engage with the world and we do them automatically we're not present most of the time a lot of people might have only a moment of being present a year or so, you know what i mean it's yeah that's probably not not true but that they're aware of maybe you know? close yeah. yeah, I've seen a I've seen a graph somewhere where the x-axis is truth is the absolute, mm-hmm. and the y-axis is the amplitude of a wave, and mm-hmm. the wave it has a slower frequency, which means that truth occurs more infrequently, and through practice mm-hmm. that wave becomes more and more short which means its frequency Mm -hmm. increases until eventually it will become the straight line of present of truth uh, yeah presence of truth which is i think something that's achieved by masters right (laughs) yeah yeah i guess so i like it yeah you're embellishing the world less right less often you're making the world better than it is or worse than it is, and I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, I'm I, I'm an artist. I like dreaming and imagining and making stuff up. So yeah. I'm very attached to the idea that I can do that and use that to to get real. You know, um, I, I like the the mystery. You know, and the and the driftiness of life. I enjoy that. I'm very attached to that. But I, what I don't like is living in a world that I've made to be much worse than it is. It's like mm-hmm. it's hard enough without doing that. It's already hard, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very much similar to this. I like the mystery, I like the mystical, I like the occult and the esotericism of things. And you can confirm that just by looking at my um, bookshelf, which is a digital bookshelf yeah. because I've been traveling a lot. So Uspensky, <laughs> Gurdjieff, oh, and all those spiritual stuff Very nice. so yeah yeah you mentioned dreams how do you use dreams for that process or how do you approach is a better word instead of use how do i approach dreams yeah, this is you know, something i've been ex- mm, go ahead uh, yeah i was just gonna add to that question do you analyze them do you decode them in any way do you follow any any uh philosophies i don't decode them you know, like I said, I like the mysteries. And, and mm. so I take the view that, that dreams are already in the correct language. Just because I don't understand what, the, you know, maybe they're not for me. It's a part of me that's that's doing something itself. I don't know that I need to consciously get involved in that. Having said that, when I ask some basic questions about the experience of dreaming, I can often get some great insight into myself, but I'm never looking at the symbols or decoding the content. I leave that alone. I let that be, but I have, it's like a paint. I see it like a painting in a gallery. I will have a response to it as the work and I'll try and put myself in the position of the one who dreamt it, you know, and, and, and see if I can relate to what they were trying to do, but I don't try and pull it apart in that way um yeah dreams it's uh i don't know what to say about dreams it's such a vast area there's so much that could be said about that 
I've, I, it's part of my background is, is dream work. And, and then I didn't do it for years. And now I've recently been getting back into it and I found it so unbelievably beneficial and productive. Mm -hmm. Um, it actually really helped me the dream. I, I would recommend that anybody who's even vaguely interested in doing some kind of dream yoga, that you do it, try it out. What I got from it recently, and like I say, I've done I've done many trainings on this. I've been doing stuff like this for years, but but it, it's different now for me. And I got something. I was so tense around sleep. If I didn't get a certain amount of sleep, I would convince myself that the next day was going to be difficult and hard. And recently when I was doing this dream work, I had the experience of basically being lucid almost all the night. I didn't feel like I was asleep in the regular way. And yet the next day I was full of energy. It was like the best night's sleep I ever had. And I was like aware the whole time, you know, or almost the whole time. It's a very strange thing. I realized I've been tensing up around the whole thing. So I would recommend it to people just for that. It's going to mix up. You know, we have so many uh, beliefs around the conditions we need to be there to sleep. You know, I like, I needed no noise. I needed no light. And, and uh, I was recently, a couple of nights, I've been sleeping with a candle in the room. So there's plenty of light, you know, and, and it's, I've realized that what we're doing during sleep, is just an extension of what we're doing during the day. You know, it's, it's the same kind of mystery that is, we're running during the day is there during sleep. It's us, you know, it belongs to us. It's in us. We can interact with it. And the dreams are a huge part of that. So I don't know that I have anything like any revelations. Maybe I've said something in the past that you want to ask specifically about, but I recommend it right now. It's a little that's coming to my head about it. <laughs> I'm O'Leary's. What's that? I said, I'm O'Leary's and I will give some context. Um, I very much resonate with what you said about needing specific environment for sleep. I need a dark room and I have data that proves to me that my sleep quality is very much inferior when I sleep um, in a room with light than uh, compared to a dark room. I need absence of sound. I need an open window. I need to tape my mouth and I need a certain temperature, mm -hmm. right? How could you take, obviously the answer would be experience, right? But how can someone like me who has not experienced dream yoga, for example, or every time that I do not get a certain amount of deep sleep, I feel like shit the next day, approach this. I should do a course on it one of these days, shouldn't I? Yeah. It's such a huge topic. Well, I tell you what I did, and, and I've done different things in the past, but, but this is what I did recently. I was looking at a, a book again um, by some Saban guys. It's one of the famous books about dream yoga. I forget the guy's name. I'll find it if you, if you want to know. 
um, it's one of the first ones you'll see. But um, yeah, I'm going to butcher the title though. It's an obvious title. Anyway, um, what I saw there was that they have the Tibetans divide the night into certain sections. And this guy is saying that in that system, you're expected to wake up certain a certain number of times per night and i was like what you mean like once and it's like no like three or four times during the night so they have different practices that meet each slot where you wake up and fall back to sleep again and that little bit for me i'd known that but i it hadn't hit me and when i heard that it, it i just had this feeling that sleep could be treated maybe differently to how i was treating it Maybe I didn't need, maybe, you know, maybe I was adding a whole bunch of tense stuff to, to sleep. Because I know I've gotten four hours of sleep and done okay. You know, I might not have felt great. I might have done yeah. better on more, but I've done okay. And I've been like, yeah. huh, how come I didn't mess that up? You know, like, <laughs> like huh. I thought I would mess that up. And, I, and it does, hasn't felt like I was running on adrenaline which is what I used to do and what most people do. Well, that just that idea that I'm supposed to wake up. And I don't know if that's like true. If I'm sure if you looked at something else that would be nullified, but it was just the idea. It was like that gave me permission for sleep to be however it is. And so I stopped wearing the earplugs. I still tape the mouth sometimes because I think that's very good for you. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but yeah, and I, I stopped worrying about light. You know, I was, I, I was, I'm such a light sleeper. If there's a car that goes by it on the, on the street way down there, I'll wake up. You know, that's, that's what I was previously, that's why I was wearing earplugs. And I just did away with that. And I was like, okay, well, let's just let this be a dream now. You know, let's just say that I'm in a dream. And as soon as I, I, I and, and I even started earlier than that. I prepare for sleep now. I get myself into a certain state and I start relaxing. I start dreaming while I'm still awake. I start getting my imagination going and, and, and entering it before I'm actually even in bed, you know, and, and making, so it's now this whole period is just dream. And if I sleep great, if I don't sleep fine, if I do breathing practices during the night, I notice certain ones, very specific ones, not just any old thing, but I notice that I will wake up feeling refreshed, even if I didn't actually get that much sleep or I was disrupted. But you see what I'm saying? If you're mm -hmm. allowed to, if you have permission to wake up during the night, then when you wake up during the night because of some noise or the temperature's wrong or whatever, it's a good thing because it's a signal that it's time to shift into the next phase. And, and that phase could be about, well, maybe, maybe this next couple hours is just about dreaming in a way that brings me peace of mind or dreaming in a way that makes me stronger or more resilient. You know what I mean? Like you can give them themes and explore certain things. And uh, yeah, it, you can make it so complex. But for me, that was the key idea is just the idea of permission. Yeah, it sounds like permission to see things a different way and 
explore different realities. I'm I'm very curious to go into that space and do some exploration myself. So I'm yeah. waiting for your course. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. <laughs> um, cool. Do you feel like we have talked about breathing enough? We could say a little more about breathing because it, it's so important to what I do. Uh, the formal Bishop Method sessions that I guide, you're breathing the whole time. I mean, you know this. It's a particular kind of breathing that we do specifically for that situation. It's not, we don't want to breathe that way all the time. It's a specific method to get specific things to open for a time. There are other ways to breathe that you should breathe all the time that are much better for you. Uh, but this is a specific effect that we're going for. The, you know, breathing, it might be the most important factor. It is for me in improving your life, making a change in something, developing yourself. I think, I think this is basically proven enough for me anyway. I'm not a scientist. I've done a lot of reading and research and experiments on myself and other people with this, but informally. I'm not a scientist. I'm an artist. You know, I, I draw and paint. And my background is at film school. Like, you know, I, I'm not a scientist. But I've seen enough to be convinced of this. I think that breathing is a key to all problems of thinking and all problems of feeling. They both shift when you change your breathing and they can do it very rapidly. Mm -hmm. I have a little 10 minute recording that I call the calming breath where within four breaths, just four breaths, you've rapidly changed your experience. You've changed the way you're thinking. You've changed the way you're feeling without ever getting involved in those things. You just change the way you're breathing. That's all. The breath is an engine of transformation. It affects the brain. It affects the body. There's tons of research on this now. There's tons of evidence on this. It's, it's a whole, it's, we're living in a sort of renaissance of, of breath work right now. There's so yeah. much going on about it that's actually based in observable stuff. And what do you know? Most of it correlates with the stuff that people knew thousands of years ago about breath it turns out that so much of it was exactly right yeah so i use the breath as a way in as a sort of entry point it's a doorway in my job is helping people co-create themselves helping them make themselves up to be better you know, however that is for them it doesn't matter to me how that is it's up to them what they want you know, i don't impose anything the way I look at it, you could be the most successful person on the planet, right? I mean, this is a debatable example, but you could be Elon Musk and your breathing could be messed up, which it is, if you look at it. Might, might be the case. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a mess. You, yeah, Elon, you know. Get yourself signed up for the Bishop Method. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd like it, actually. Uh, I'm not sure we'd get on, but anyway, um, the, <laughs> um, no, he's, he'd be welcome. Um, but yeah, you can be the most successful person on the planet. And if you're breathing wrong, 
what is any of that worth? It's like your moment to moment experience is sort of unstable. It's ungrounded. It lacks life and pleasure and enjoyment and a feeling of accomplishment. You know, you're not really living. You're, you're running on automatic, even if you're doing it in a very clever way, you're still not here. You know, um, the breath gives us direct feedback. If you change the way you, you know, if you think about something terrifying, your breath will change. If you change your breath, your thinking will change. It changes back and forth both ways. In the Bishop method, we use it to stimulate certain things in the body. We use the breath to stimulate a wave in the body that we observe. And that wave is what helps us let go of those tensions and, and relax that bracing that we're talking about. Um, and we don't need to be perfectly relaxed. You don't need to get rid of all tension. It's just the, if tension is limiting you and it's not useful to you, if it's unnecessary, then you can do without it, let it go. You have a lot more energy, a lot more life. You feel a lot better. It's also, you know, the breath is what unites us. We're, we're all breathing the same air, you know, all of us, everyone on the planet. And it's, it's a, a way that we can become a part of a bigger thing. You know, you can share the space with the plants and the little birds and other people, you know, and, and suddenly then the world matters to you a lot more, you know, not in like an anxious way, but it's like, you can make the world personal. It's you're, you're breathing it, you know, it's breathing you, you're all sharing this thing. It's kind of a nice idea. Um, it's more of a romantic experience. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's romantic. It's, it's yeah, it's adventurous, it's mysterious, you know, mm. it's not, it, it, it connects you to things that you can't see. And, and it, it introduces the idea that you're interacting with forces that you're not seeing, you know, it's, uh, that might be affecting, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a mystery. In the Bishop method, what we're primarily doing with the breath is, is gently, very gently, we never push hard, but we're gently untangling the patterns that keep us breathing in a way that's really restrictive that supports unhelpful states, unhelpful experiences. We're gradually breaking that up and helping to free the breath and have it be more natural. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have been practicing with you for, by the way, I'm, I'm pretty sure you you know what question we, we are heading towards. But anyway, so... We I have been practicing with you for like <laughs> a while now, and I have to note the attention to and the focus on gentleness and mm. elegance for mm -hmm. the most part. So, how does this approach compare to more intense go out into the night sky approaches like holotropic breathing in order to induce change? Well, I got to be upfront about that. I've never done holotropic breathing myself, so I can't do a direct comparison. I have a lot of clients who have done both and they've told me about their experience of the difference. So I can only really respond to my idea of what they're doing. And I don't know how accurate that is. And you've done it, I think, so maybe you can fill that in. I don't know. 
yeah, the gentleness thing. My understanding, I mean, there are lots of breathing methods where you're trying to get like a psychedelic experience happening pretty much or something along those lines. Yeah. That's not what we're doing in the Bishop method. Now, things like that can happen. You're definitely adjusting your experience of the world sort of temporarily. You can get all sorts of weird effects, but we're not doing it for those. We see those as sort of side effects. You know, it's not, it's not kind of why, it's not why I'm doing it, you know. I, I got, like I said, I got into all of this because I wanted my life to be more worth living. And I don't think a peak experience is going to do that in any long-term meaningful way. It might be useful data. It might stretch the realms of what's possible, but I'm interested in actually changing it where, where one thing actually changes into another thing. That's my interest. And it's not a thing that the peak experience to me is a flourish in that journey, not what actually changes it. The gentleness came really as a result of my type. I was somebody who would push and push and go like crazy and work himself to the bone. And I still am kind of like that. But I realized that with something as powerful as this breathing method that we do, you can get unnecessary extreme results. You know, it can lead to some chaos. I realized I had to back off. I had to learn what I needed to learn was gentleness. I needed to learn how to be good to myself, how to soothe myself, calm myself down, show myself some compassion. I was missing that. I never learned it as a child. And I don't see much evidence of it in most people either. You know? So, this is the approach I use. I learned it the hard way. I learned it by pushing too much again and again and again, and finally getting the message that I had to go slow and take it easy. If you move, if you have a, a physical block, imagine a shield or a castle wall. If you just push at it, not much is going to happen. You're going to need a lot of force to make it move. A lot of energy, maybe a lot of time. You could simply relax and wait for an opening or go find some weakness or, you know, there's a joke by a comedian that the weakest point in a castle's defenses is the gift shop. So you could enter through the gift shop, you know, it's a metaphor. <laughs> um, I love that's it. what we do. We want to <laughs> take a graceful, gentle approach something that is tense and rigid the one thing it can't adjust to defend itself against is increased gentleness at some point it kind of just lets go just enough to, to become malleable so that's the approach i take with everything it's infected the way i do everything i did not start out that way i'm not that way in all areas i wish i was sometimes yeah. you need to push though Sometimes there's a time for that. Sometimes it's the right ingredient, but I don't think it's the right default strategy. This kind of anxious, demanding push. Just take it easy, relax, be gentle. I've seen in clients and I've done, I don't know, I stopped counting at 4,000 hours with clients. I don't know where I am now. That was like a year ago, I think, that I got to that. I, I don't know. I lost count. But I've seen this again and again in people. The 
they make progress better when they soften up and go slower. They get better results most of the time in most things. Like I say, it's not always. Sometimes you got to push. But uh, I totally lost my thread. <laughs> it's gone. That's okay. I can <laughs> talk to that. In most cases, what people are lacking is not that push, is not that extra gear, but rather sensitivity and awareness, in my opinion. And this practice really opens one to this way of being if they haven't been introduced. It's a lower gear, it's a more subtle way to experience and observe from my experience so far. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, be, it, we're, you become an observer, you know, when you can see what's going on, then you can do something about it. You know, then you can bring into play all of this conscious stuff that you've got to see it first. And if we're pushing, we're, chances that we're seeing it fully are not, not so high. I think we are complete. Okay. Do you have any, any last words to leave? Let's say someone who's feeling a little bit stuck. Someone who's feeling a little bit stuck? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I'd say you should get in touch with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing you should do, right? You should go to my website, bishopmethod.com, and sign up for my mailing list, and you'll hear about stuff. I do group sessions, one-on-one work. I've got tons of courses. Even Elon Musk would like it, maybe. I will um, include that in the description. I will actually send thanks. a DM <laughs> to Elon Musk if you promise a commission. Nice. Yeah, yeah. No worries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you start if someone is feeling stuck? Easy. you got to start by showing yourself a little bit of care, a little bit of self-love. That's, that's the thing that's missing. That's the first thing that's missing. You know, you got to slow down, take it easy, down-regulate the body if you can, and show yourself some care and love. You're, you're showing up in a, in a world that you've made harsh, and it's going to be much easier to unblock yourself if it's a welcoming, soft environment, inside and out. So that's where I'd say to start. That's where I start. I love it. And I think we can end it here. So thank you very much for being here. That was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, I had fun.